Microphone checker. Oh, yeah. Welcome back to another episode of the Premium Pete Show. Shouts to everybody who checked out last week's episode with the one and only Jeff Staple. Okay, if you don't know about Jeff Staple, man, legendary. Been in the game for many, many years. Designer, entrepreneur. I mean, listen, their sneak, listen, the Pigeon Nike SB Dunk in 2005 that released and caused a riot and that was on the front page of the New York Post is one of sneakers, like, Top moments, like meaning, like of 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 how emerging it was coming at that time, man. That people had to understand. Yes, people were waiting online very early on for sneakers, man. Anyway, listen, Jeff Staple, uh, been in the game a long time. Somebody I respect very much. It was great to sit down with him. There's tons of gems in that episode. If you're into designing and fashion and streetwear, Staple Design is a you know is a pillar in the community, is a pillar in the culture. So check that episode out if you haven't. Internet, listen, you know when I tell you to open up your Twitter app, open up your Instagram app, at Premium Pete, at Premium Pete Show, and check the fuck in. Let me know where you're listening from, man. I, listen, so many people are on the check-in. Cleveland on the check-in, Detroit on the check-in, uh, uh, Australia on the check-in, London. Someone hit me the other day from fucking, uh, um, what's it called? Um, uh, what is this? Um, Paris. And they were like, yo, I'm a big fan of the Premium Pete Show. Internet's worldwide. Let me tell you something. People all the time hit me up and tell me, like, yo, I appreciate you. Thank you for all you've done. Uh, been following, you know, my movement for a while. Some of them is from the Combat Jack Show. Rest in peace uh, to the one and only Reggie Osei, a.k.a. Combat Jack. You know, a lot of history was made. A King, what up? But listen, let me tell you something. Uh, wherever you're listening from, at Premium P, at Premium P Show, Shout me out, man. I, I, I want to know where you're listening from. I love when people hit me up and let me know, like, yo, I'm listening from, you know, uh, China. I'm listening from here. I appreciate that shit. Premium Pete Show International, man. Not only in the States, okay? Outside the States. I really appreciate you. And I know people be like, yo, what could I do? You know, what you know, what can I do to support you? Like, let me know. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you. Go to iTunes. Rate it five stars. Leave a comment. And then also... Okay, for those that don't know, go to YouTube, subscribe to us, tell a friend to tell a friend, watch a video, leave a comment in there, you know, get it cracking in the comment section. I, I'm actually been answering a lot of people in the comment section. We've really been working on building our YouTube uh, channel. There's a lot of great videos in there. There's a lot of great clips, and there's more to even come. So make sure you subscribe to the Premium Pete Show on YouTube, and then you know all the other platforms: Spotify, SoundCloud. Uh, you know, iTunes, tell a friend to tell a friend. Internet, you know when I get into my Pastor Pete mode, I start uh, dropping some knowledge because why not? Like, what are you going to do, keep on to it? It makes no sense. You know, give it to people. Let people be better. And, and sometimes even if those people maybe are younger than you or they started uh, later than you, you know, don't hate. You know, some, maybe it's not your turn yet. But just keep on pushing, okay? You know, you got a 9 to 5. I remember I always tell you, 8 to 4, 10 to 6, whatever it is, 12 to 8. Shout out to my, all my overnight workers listening to the Premium Pete Show. If you are one of those people, you know, uh, your day job fuels your dream job. Don't come home and say you're tired. You know what I mean? Come home and work on it. Come home on, you know, and, and put the work in. When you put the work in, it's undeniable, man. And have the patience, man. Incidents, Pastor Pete uh, on Twitter, or, well, actually, it could be Instagram, I think. The other day I wrote, uh, never stop believing in you. It's something I always write. Uh, because I think sometimes, like, when you're struggling and things are going wrong, um, you know, maybe, like, you know, rent is due, you know, maybe you didn't make as much money this month or whatever. Those are the times you start contemplating what you should do and if you should stop doing what you should do. And, you know, uh, that could even mean if you're talented, you know, that that could happen to people freelancing uh, artists or freelancing like real painting artists or whoever, you know what I mean? But I will say this, never stop believing in you. 
hustle harder. You know, uh, uh, if you have to sleep less. Like, that's the thing, too. I think uh, social media sometimes puts a, a point where it shows people, like, now nah, you don't have to do as much. That's not true. You know, and, and to be honest with you, from what you, all that good is in gold, what you see may not really be what you, you know, what, what people are experiencing. That's the only thing, too, that sucks. A lot of people are looking to look good. To, like, image is everything to them. Now, like, don't get me wrong. I, I understand that. But at the end of the day, to what point? To it being fake? Like, you know, I don't know, man. I mean, at the end of the day, I just love being with my kids. And, and, and you know, that's all that matters, man, to me. You know, that's what helped me, uh, you know, uh, really see life through a different lens by being a father and something it's, people ask me like what are you most proud of like yo i'm not just a motherfucking podcaster king you understand i'm not just a podcaster motherfucker out here making moves for years ask somebody okay and not you know in many buckets i know somebody says hey, it's premium p he's a good podcaster fuck premium p okay i'm only playing i'm only playing i'm only playing internets listen um any advice you need fellow fathers fellow podcasters Fellow people want to get into business and entrepreneurship on a level of uh, startups and anything. You have some questions, man? You know what? It's okay. I'll take some. Email me, thepremiumpeachshow at gmail.com. Again, thepremiumpeachshow at gmail.com. And on this week's episode, man, this is a legendary uh, episode. I love giving you the episodes that people's names that you may not know of. But I promise you their journeys, their stories are not only inspiring but important to your life. Okay? that you could learn so much from, you know, and, and I think that's important to people who live their journey, that they could be able to inspire and teach and help others that they may not even know. That's what's awesome about podcasting. It's the one and only boy from New York City, Aton Sugarman. It's a restaurateur, it's an entrepreneur, uh, just a person that really I admire, not only as a friend, but somebody who, like, something that's very valued, relationships, uh, he knows how to build them. And he's genuine. Ain't no fuck shit. It's real stuff. A-Town, let me tell you something. We go over everything from, you know, having Tommy Lasorda as a mentor at 19 years old, having dinner with Frank Sinatra. Not once, a couple times, man. You know, uh, Joe DiMaggio and, you know, having his uh, Hunt and Fish Club, a very beautiful restaurant in New York City. Southern Hospitality, made in New York pizza. And then him taking over the legendary White Horse Tavern. Man, this dude is a restaurateur. Uh, you also have businesses with Daryl Strawberry. I mean, uh, you know, Derek Jeter, good friend of him, Gary V. I mean, listen, the guy is a mover and shaker, but more importantly, he's a good fella. Internets, I, I don't need to say no more. I promise you, this is an episode you're going to enjoy. I present to you the Aton Sugarman episode of the Premium Pete Show. Let's get to it. Cheer. Yo, what's up, y'all? This is Fat Man Scoop, the other smooth voice of the club, the two-time Grammy Award winner. Let me make this official for you. Fat Man Scoop, Cork McClan, Internets. It's time to go with my dude, Premium Pete. Let's get focused. Let's go. Internets, let's turn up one time. Premium Pete. Come on, everybody get set. Let's go. It's the next episode. It's the Premium Pete Show. News, interviews, all of the info. Listen up. It's the Premium Pete Show. If you want to scoop in the low down. Listen to the show, cause Milk said so. Fuck what you heard, better act like you know. It's the Premium Pete Show. Internet, welcome back to another episode of the Premium Pete Show. Man, sitting down with a very good fella, okay? First of all, shout out to my guy, Mark Zablo. Zablo, Zablowski. He's a good friend of mine, and whenever he introduces me to another person that I've known or seen, you know it's going to be a good episode. So, you know, if I want to run down the titles, I can say restaurateur, entrepreneur, 
co-founder of Southern Hospitality Barbecue, made in New York pizza, uh, uh, Hunt and Fish Club, a guy that it, it reminds me of, uh, like 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 a lot of my uncles growing up, just a real well-connected guy. Uh, boy from New York City, the one and only Aton Sugarman is in the building. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Wow. Listen, I could have even went further. Like That's the only thing yeah. that sucks is like, and, you know, you're born and raised in New York, right? But more importantly, you, you know when people ask you, what do you do? Sure. You can tell them, like, you, you know, you say, hey, look, I own some restaurants and or, or I've done this, I've done that. You know, it's really sometimes hard to just label somebody one thing. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to say, like, oh, it's the guy who owns this or that's the guy who owns that. Yeah. You know, it's like even when somebody, like, you ever get somebody, like, uh, like maybe you meet somebody in your family and mm-hmm. they introduce you to, like, another person and say, like, oh, what do you do? Like, uh, you know, f- for me, it's actually it's not that hard. I mean, the truth is primarily I'm a restaurateur, so that's what I'm known as. Uh, I've had a diverse life, but at this point, that occupies 95% of my being, so... Well, the great, no, you're right. But the great yeah. thing about about you is that you have it's 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 funny, and and, and I I'm excited for people who know of you to learn more about you, and yeah. people who don't know you to know you know get to know you, because it's like, and we'll get back to you know you growing up in New York City, but you're a person who uh, you know has had uh, dinner with Frank Sinatra, sure. right? This is there's so many different things, right? Yeah, yeah, but. How do and I gotta say it in my way like how the fuck does hmm. somebody like how do, how do you have dinner with pun there, right? yeah how do you have dinner with how somebody? does that happen uh, well uh, at the time I was assisting the great Tommy Lasorda one of the great baseball managers of all time Tommy uh, is like my second father uh, and Tommy was one of Frank's best friends so hmm. when they were together in, in New York at the same time I was very fortunate that I would be with Tommy every moment that he was around that he was uh, awake. And uh, he brought me with him on several different occasions, and I was around Frank on several different occasions, and it was one of the, uh, the great honors and one of the great experiences in my life was being around Frank. And it was, it was catching Frank at, at the tail end of, of his life, unfortunately. Was, uh, you know, were you able to talk on the table, or they were like, hey, listen, you know, did you feel, like, nervous to bring Ed to the table? Or? I, I think there'd have to be a bigger word than nervous. I don't think nervous would, would fully capture... Uh, just how scared I was. And and on top of how scared I was, Tommy made it very clear to me that I wasn't allowed to say a word mm. unless I was spoken to. But Frank was great, and Frank made a point of coming over to me and talking to me. And he, I think he recognized how nervous I was. And he came over and he goes, so tell me about yourself. And, and we had a couple of minutes to talk, and uh, it it was incredible. Where and were you? What, what did you? Were you at a restaurant? The first time around, we were at a place called Bill Hong's. It was a, uh, a Chinese restaurant. It doesn't exist anymore. It was owned and run by a guy named Bill Hong. It's on 56th Street. Uh, I think the second time, we were at a place called Rocky Lee's mm-hmm. on 2nd Avenue, which was a really great, tiny little Italian restaurant which made great pizza. Um, and what did uh, Frank Sinatra, what, what was his like order? Like, his uh, main. They just remember? sent out everything. Oh, okay. Uh, they sent out everything. But yeah, Frank ate some of the pizza, some of the pasta, and the owner must have drove the kitchen crazy. He just basically sent the entire menu out times six, mm. which I guess if Frank was at your restaurant was what any of us would do. Sure, sure. Oh, uh, blue eyes. Yeah, if there's anyone you wanted to please, uh, it would be Frank. So so you had dinner with him not once but twice. You ever see him again uh, after that? Actually, more than twice. I think it turned out to be either four or five different really? times. Really? We well, it wasn't dinner all the times, but yeah, four or five different times. And then 
I saw him at Radio City Music Hall uh, with Don Rickles opening up for him, uh, which was which was pretty great. And how old were you at this time? I was 19. God damn. Yeah, I was a young guy. 19 having yeah. dinner with Tommy Lasorda and Frank Sinatra. Scared out of my Who the wits. fuck are you? Yeah. <laughs> Lucky. Lucky. You know, you think about it too. Tommy Lasorda, I know you yeah. mentioned that you were assisting him. How did you even meet him? I met Tommy through uh, an old friend of mine named Mead. Mead was was and is his manager for marketing purposes. Uh, and Mead basically put the two of us together, and Tommy just enjoyed my con- Like, I basically I, I helped Tommy. This is, I knew Tommy when he was still manager, when he was still managing the Dodgers. And I just kind of tagged along with him and helped him do whatever he had to do when he was in New York when the Dodgers would play the Mets. And he just enjoyed my company. He'd call me and he'd say, listen, I, I'm shooting a commercial in town today. I'll get you... You know, some kind of a, a budget and a stipend. You're going to come work with me, and and that was it. And it just, whenever he came to town, I was his call, and we'd we'd spend time. And uh, I don't think it was ever a trip from then on. He came to New York that uh, I didn't see him literally the in, entirety of his trip. So would you say that you were like the dot connector, like when he came into town, like you connected dots for? You know, I don't know if it was that because uh, the truth is he had so many of those. He was so connected in New York, and he had so many friends. I think it was just. Uh, I think we enjoyed each other's company, and I think, yeah, I mean, it was definitely convenient. I mean, I was more than honored to be the guy to help with any errands he needed or any favors he needed or anything like that. So, you know, to me it was a privilege, uh, and I guess it was convenient for him also. You know, it's funny because it's like getting into this episode is like so many fucking people you know, and not yeah. only know. Like, you know, we live in a world where people say, "I like that's one thing I'm very honest about, like who I know and how I know them. So what I mean by that is like some people are like, Yo, that's my friend, I know him very well, yeah. you want me to give him a call or whatever. Some people are like, I know, we know each other, but not like that. I don't really talk to him, I don't sit down and eat. Yeah. There's a lot of people, and again, that's why, uh, you know, I, I admire you a lot, uh, um, you know, is because I see a lot of myself and, you know, uh, meaning like I have pure relationships with people and, and they just happen to be, uh, some of them have to be superstars. Some of them have to be big celebrities. Even like Ric Flair. Like, you went to I love that have, you mentioned did, him. Didn't he have a, like a 70? How old was he? Yeah, he just turned 70. Yeah, 70, we all, a surprise uh, birthday. Yeah, party. we did a surprise how, birthday how from Atlanta. You, how, I, I, you know what? Honestly, I, I met Rick. Uh, we had a mutual friend uh, named Jared who introduced us. Uh, Rick's wife's kids wanted to go see Justin Timberlake in concert, which, as you know, I could facilitate. And we did that. And uh, years before that, before it actually happened, we talked about it. And Rick and I just became good friends. And uh, I'm good friends with Rick. I'm good friends with his wife, Wendy, who's also wonderful. And and it's an amazing thing because I grew up a wrestling fan when I was a kid. And if you had told me, if you had told a 12-year-old me that later in my life uh, I'd even meet Rick Flair, leave alone become his friend I would have uh, you would have had to pull the smelling salts out I would have, mm. I would have passed, passed somebody would have DDT'd you yeah, well, what's his, what was his fa- famous move figure four leg lock okay he would have got you in one of those motherfuckers absolutely woo yes sir well, let me ask you something yes, um, <laughs> Rick's the greatest if I, what, what for people listening who you know obviously know of Rick for, but what mm-hmm. type of guy is he Rick's beautiful man Rick is Rick is such a good hearted sweet guy uh he is Rick is his character. He is the nature boy. Mm. There's no differentiation between what you see on TV and what he is. He's he walks around. He's got the Rolexes on. He's got the diamonds on. He's got the suit on. He's got all that. But what he is on top of that is a big-hearted guy that would do anything for a friend. Mm. And 
there's no no from him if you're his friend. There is no no to any request. And he's a sweetheart of a guy, and he's very aware of the fact that you're a fan and that you enjoy meeting him. And he's going to do the woo, and he's going to be everything you want him to be. And he's a lovely guy. Um, so, like I said, he's the guy you see on TV, but you don't realize that he's got a big heart, and he's he's a very genuine, sure. sweet guy. So bringing it back, you know, because it's amazing of where like how you got to have dinner uh, multiple times with yeah. Tommy Lasorda and Frank Sinatra sure. as a young kid. But even taking it back, even as a, a little bit younger than that, before you did that, yeah. did you know what you wanted to do? Like, no. you know, like, Did you have any idea? Like, did your father tell you you had to do a certain thing? Or? My father uh, was always supportive of me, but he never gave me a specific direction. I think my parents uh, always encouraged me to do whatever it was that I felt passionate about. The problem was I didn't feel passionate about anything scholastic, and they were both very, you know, school-oriented people, book-oriented people. I hated reading. I hated school. I hated—I uh, always tell this story about it. I remember my first day of kindergarten. I remember being a happy kid right up until the first day of kindergarten. My mother dropped me off, and I just started sobbing uncontrollably, and I kind of felt that way the rest of the time I was in school until I dropped out. Um, so I had— great parents that, like I said, encouraged me and supported me and were fantastic, but uh, they were very inclined towards education, and the truth is the conformity of education was very against the grain of what I wanted in my life. I think we spoke about uh, this maybe off-air before, but uh, didn't we bring up the fact that, like, that where if, you know, if in school if you felt like you were failing like that, I don't know, I'm not saying your parents, but where teachers felt like you weren't going to be anything. Oh, yeah. yeah I, th- I think that's one of the big fails of education in for, for our generation, our lifetime. I think they had they really fell back on scare tactics. And they love telling you that, you know, they love telling fourth grade kids that if you didn't pass this history test, you know, the rest of your life was going to be crap. You don't pass this. You're not going to finish this school. And you're not going to get into this junior high. You're not going to get to this high school. You're not going to get into this college. You're going to wind up going to jail or being a truck driver or doing some menial job. And you're not going to get the good money. And you're not – like they love setting up this – domino effect of terrible things that'll happen in your life and you have no possibility of being successful or happy or anything like that if you don't pass this history exam and you believe that and you are if you would have asked me at 15 I really would have thought my life was not going to be a good place because I wasn't a school person I really wasn't I wasn't inclined that way I I was not willing to work at it I I loved comic books and baseball cards and wrestling I loved my hobbies I was willing to do 100 hours a week on that I was not willing to sit there and and focus on things that I thought were irrelevant, and I couldn't even force myself to do it. But I think that's I think that's a big fail with that era's and probably eras prior to it, with the way they tried to get kids to focus. Is they use that scare tactic, and like I said, it works. You're a kid, you know, and they're sitting sure. there telling you that your life is going to be crap if you don't pass this exam. And I believed that. I believed that my life was going to be a bad place. Well, uh, teachers were wrong, and then well, you prove yourself wrong. Yeah. What did what did that do? My father was a teacher. Yeah, that's yeah. fucking crazy. Yeah. What about mom? My mother uh, basically raised us. My grandmother had an art gallery, uh, and then she went to work with my grandmother uh, in the art gallery. Uh, an art gallery sounds like it's a it's a fancy thing, but she basically uh, wasn't a very profitable art gallery, but. Uh, it was a very passionate thing for her, and my mother worked there for uh, our teenage years. 
And you, you had, a, you, I think you have a sister, right? I do. I have yeah. an older sister. And then family was like close and stuff. Yeah, I mean, listen, we had our our problems for sure, but yeah, we we were and are very close. And what about pops? Uh, did you have a good relationship with him? Great. Yeah. And, Great. And, and, and mom. Listen, he was he was frustrated by, uh, he felt that I was a smart kid that could do a lot better in school, and I just wasn't doing better. So that. Definitely, you know, uh, our my teenage years weren't the best moments for our relationship. I know I always knew they loved me, but they were very frustrated with me because I was, you know, I was beyond a bad student, and I was, you know, getting into trouble in my own ways, and you know, a bad kid in in uh, small type of ways, okay. nothing crazy. Okay, you know. Couple of little, uh, uh, you nothing know, crazy. Misdemeanors. The police weren't showing up at the house. Okay, but okay. you know, stupid things. Now, were you trading baseball cards at a young age? Is yeah, that, that how you comic got connected books, all that stuff? Uh, to a lot of people? That was the beginning of it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so it's, baseball cards, really. Baseball cards, comics, all that kind, of, all kinds of collectibles. I loved, I loved all that kind of stuff. Um, it's funny how I was so in love with it and so passionate about it then and I couldn't care less about it now but back then it was like it was my whole life and this was before it had the kind of value that it had that it has now like now it's it's a financial thing now people do it and they're like this is worth this this is worth that back then you did it because you loved Batman or that or because you loved Archie Comics or because you know you would trade you would trade the Daryl Strawberry card for the Mackie Sasser card and you know you did it it was, it was a passion thing uh, and then later on like even like during during my era of doing it, you started assigning values to these things, but it didn't, you know, it, it wasn't about that in my childhood. You know, uh, your friend, uh, Mr. Gary V. well, our yeah. friend, let's say, I mean, yeah. you're friends with him no, way our longer. Friend. Yeah, he loves but, you. But, but, you know, uh, Gary V. is projecting that uh, baseball card uh, selling and the value is going to be tremendously. Uh, let, me, let me tell you an, an interesting thing about Gary. We just had dinner the other night. And I love Gary very much. Gary, in a funny way, is progressing and regressing all at the same time. <laughs> He's progressing and becoming this massive business magnate, right? And he's, ma- and he's, you know, he is absolutely the face of social media marketing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's also reverting back to his childhood more and more every day. This fascination with baseball cards is a new thing. Mm. This is a totally new thing. He calls me up about eight or nine months ago, and he goes, okay, listen, I got something for us to do together, which he does about four time, four or five times a year. And he goes, you and I are going to be the owners of Tops and Upper Deck. I go, okay, is General Motors after that, or just uh, we're going to stop at Tops and Upper Deck? <laughs> and he goes, just Tops and Upper Deck. And he is, like, obsessed with it. And I go, Gary, here's the thing. You're, all, you're getting into this now. I did this for all my childhood and, all, and it's, I, I love that you love it and I'll happily talk to you about it but uh, he he doesn't just get obsessed he dives in the pool with no socks no underwear no one he just goes in sure. and like now he's like the baseball card king and he goes to the national and he sits there like a fan and like goes to every booth and he has this thread with me and like five of his other he has like a core group of like six seven friends and he has this thread and he drives me fucking crazy because every 13 minutes this thing goes off and it goes crazy oh my god oh my god i just got the lebron uda certified i just bought 15 of them i'm on ebay i'm like and he has so many huge things going on and he's sitting there with all his buddies and all we're talking about is getting you know the ken griffey jr 1991 you know donruss you know (laughs) 
But listen, God bless him that he can still do things that make him feel like a kid and get that passionate. Again, that's that's a big thing that you can do that at this point in your life. You know, you've been uh, involved with a bunch of things with Gary. I know Gary is yeah. uh, yeah. an investor in Made in New York Pizza, right? And, yeah, and Hunt and Fish Club. Uh, and Hunt and Fish Club. Sure. Um, and you're an investor in, yeah, in Empathy, Empathy Wine, yeah, so absolutely. hopefully it's coming out soon. Gary, I yeah, mean, I've seen people We're buying them. Buddy. Are they getting the, the packages? I think so. I think so. I know it, it, people have been waiting for a while for Empathy to come out, and I know they've. it's, it's taken a minute, but when it comes, it's going to be great. Yeah, I mean, look, I... I, I, I That's a duty bet on, you know? Yeah, of course, of course, yeah. absolutely. And, and, and uh, you know, I want to see the Malbec one. Make sure we yeah. make a Malbec one, Gary. Um but you know, look, you guys have a great relationship. Yeah. Um, I, you were at WrestleMania. We were uh, in the front you see row. Us? You see us? Yeah, there? in the front row. Did uh, you see the thing with Batista? Uh, Tony Batista. Oh my! No, Dave Batista. It was this was, this was Gary at his best. So we're sitting there. Uh, my buddy Steve Rubin works at WWE. Put me and him and uh, David Arquette in the front row. I mean, we could not have had better seats. We're right behind the broadcast booth. Dave Batista comes out and he gives Gary the stare, and Gary takes his Jets jersey and like pumps it up. And Batista gives us this this scariest look, and he looks at Gary, and then he looks at me, and you know, like the coward I am, I put my hands in the air, I'm like, this, you go ahead and you can deal with this because I'm I'm out, and that's it. And Batista goes to the ring. This actually turned out to be Batista's retirement match. Really? Yeah, absolutely. But there was Gary, tough as hell, as long as there was 27 security guards there in yeah, front of him. Yeah. And, Bautista and a big was going to come and fucking body slam him. Yeah. The funny thing is I actually posted it the next day. And Batista, I guess, saw it and he reposted I posted it. I said, by the way, I said, you know, because Gary writes, he, Gary writes, of course, he goes, I didn't give a fuck. He goes, I'm not scared of Batista. I'm not scared of anyone. And I write, excuse me, by the way, you can handle this one on yourself. Because if he had turned on us, the only time you'd ever see me run that fucking fast is if the goddamn ice cream truck's getting away. <laughs> Mr. Softy. Yeah. Where you at? So let's talk. Let, let, let's bring so so you, you you know you're trading baseball cards yeah uh you know it's a tough time in school sure but 19 you're eating dinner with uh, lasorda uh the and, funny part is that, that, that that's only three years later that's the really funny that part. is crazy like when you go you three years before that i was like at my parents and miserable and, and you know trying dropping to, out of school and, and trying yeah. to figure it out definitely trying to figure it out so so where do you but where do you go from there you know you're assisting lasorda you're, you know, you're, you're, it, you're it, eating it, with Sinatra. Yeah, you're, no, it moves quickly. It's, 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 you know, like I said, I was very big in like all the collectibles. Uh, like I said, my buddy Mead introduced me to Tommy. Tommy, the truth is, my relationship with Tommy absolutely changed the course of my life. The relationships that I made through him completely changed the course of my life. It, other than my my family, is the most influential relationship in my life. Um, so and he was extremely generous like he just he would tell people great things about me and he would introduce me to people like I was his son um so it was an amazing like I went from being feeling like this loser kid to all of a sudden being with him you know when he'd come to the city eight ten times a year and literally being at banquets with presidents and I mean we were having dinner with Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle and um, et cetera, et cetera, and like the biggest people. Yeah, serious stuff. How was Joe DiMaggio? Uh, not as much fun as I'd love to say he was. Why? Why do you say that? Very quiet, very mm. quiet. He and I got to be friendly. Uh, we would have breakfast together sometimes and he was very quiet guy, very difficult to uh, to have a real friendship with, to be honest. 
You know, with, with all these, you know, and it's crazy because it, mm-hmm. we just kind of started the episode and there's so many more things and people to go over. Yeah. That, you know, it's like, but, you know, when, and we'll bounce around, but look, DiMaggio, you know, uh, Sinatra, uh, yeah. you know, turning your life around to like, you know, I mean, like f- trying to figure it out and, you know, but being around these type of people, did you feel like, uh, holy shit, like, you know, uh, something is going right, like because because you didn't have it all figured um, out, right? Did you? But did you feel like not not everybody was hanging out with people like that? You know what I? It it, it certainly it certainly influenced me, and it definitely certainly made me work harder and strive. You know, the real truth is, like I said, when I when I tell you how much the relationship with Tommy influenced me, uh, the truth is uh, because I didn't want to disappoint him, and I wanted him to be proud of me, and I wanted him to to. You know, I was so proud of knowing him, and I wanted him to not, you know, feel as though you know some bummy kid, whatever. I think I worked really hard to achieve whatever. Um, so yeah, in that respect, it it did help me kind of break out of the shell of feeling like a bum and feeling like a loser, which is kind of what I felt like. You know, I was a a poor kid that grew up in New York with you know with nothing, and you know, truthfully, not uh, not a ton of self esteem and stuff. You know, I didn't, I wasn't Mr. Popularity growing up, and I, you know, you know, it's not the cool kids that sit around collecting the comic books and the baseball cards, and those aren't the ones that the girls are in love with and all that stuff. And, you know, uh, that relationship gave me a sense of worth and a sense of identity because the people, I mean, listen, people wanted to be around him and wanted to be around his friends, and he introduced me to such incredible people that just being in that sort yeah, it made you feel like you know, you had to gravitate to the situation. So, yeah. It's incredible. You know, when was your first, after all that, like, you know, moving into your 20s, when was the first time you opened up something? Or did you start working somewhere? Yeah, or? I actually started bartending. Uh, there was a bar on the Upper West Side, a great bar. It was called the PNG. Uh, it was on 73rd and Amsterdam, a legendary, legendary bar. But what uh, made you become, like, you, you know what? You know how to bartend? Like, no, a buddy of mine, I did not know how to bartend, but it was just a neighborhood bar from my parents' neighborhood. A buddy of mine used to go there, invited me to go. Uh, my good buddy George and Steve were the owner's sons. They used to bartend there, and they taught me how to bartend. And I would just bartend. And I started doing it for fun, and they just let me do it. And I would have done it for free. I loved it, bro. I was, you know, like I said, I was 18, 19 years old, and there I was bartending. And it's, you know, the first feeling in your life, like you feel like you're a grown-up. You're sitting there, and you're serving older people, and they're treating you like you're a grown-up. And you have older women, you know, kind of hitting on you and treating you like you're a man. And another great experience. And it was also the beginning of my fascination and falling in love with the hospitality industry. Mm. So uh, my old friend, Steve Chihalis, who I hope hears this, Steve, I love you, uh, really taught me the ins and outs of bartending and what it is to, to own a bar and what a difficult thing that is. And towards the end of that time at P&G, you know, he and I became very involved in that. Uh, unfortunately, that bar ended up uh, going out of business because uh, – it just it was the, they had this long lease and then it ended and 
like a lot of things in New York it left but it was legendary bars and Donnie Brasco's and a lot of great movies and really amazing people would go there all Greg Allman would come drink there with us whenever he would do a show at the Beacon Theater uh, Adam Clayton from U2 used to come mm. there a lot Julian Lennon Kiefer Sutherland used to come all the time it was such a great bar man it was like such a great piece of New York history it's so sad that it's gone you mentioned uh, the, how tough it is to have a bar in, oh, yeah. in, in, you know what does that mean for people listening who, who don't know it's not just a bar the hospitality industry is by far one of the hardest industries in the world but it's, what, what, it's, yeah, explain it's, that. it's an industry that's unforgiving to someone that's not a first-class operator you operate on the thinnest of margins so if you're not really really good and you're not watching the pennies of the operation you don't have a goddamn prayer mm. it's so hard there's so many things working against you uh, I think the failure rate is so high in this business because so many people think they have their grandmother's recipe for meatballs and I always equate it to field the famous field of dream lines you know with uh, you know if you build it they'll come and they just think it's that simple how hard could it be? I got my grandmother's recipe for meatballs, the greatest meatballs in the world. I'm going to open the doors. 10,000 people are going to show up. We're going to be rich. And I'm going to be skiing on with Jack Nicholson in three years, right? It's going to be that easy. But those stories are never. And it's it's such a hard business, man. It's so hard. And it's you better live it. And then the realization comes to you at a certain point that you're not a king. You're a servant, which is fine. But you better want that. And you better want, you better get real joy out of serving people and not feeling like you want to be some king sitting at a table like, oh, I'm the owner. I'm sitting on the goddamn throne. That's not who you are. You're a servant. You're there to serve everybody else. And if you're not okay with that, you shouldn't be in this business. Mm. And that's that's the real truth of this. Mm. It's a gem right there. Yeah. You know, so so... You, you you worked at the bar and mm -hmm. and and then now the was the first thing you I I know you were involved in a lot of like you know uh, clubs too wasn't like yeah. One Oak or uh... well One Oak was was down the road the first club I got involved with there was a club called One Fifty One a guy who became my partner later in life Ronnie Kaplan owned a club called One Fifty One uh, I went there as a customer a friend of mine introduced me to him I would go there as a customer at that point in my life I I got to be friendly with some interesting people. Uh, I got friends with a lot of the guys from the 96 Yankees, uh, the dynasty era Yankees, Derek Jeter, and all those guys. Uh, I was pretty friendly with the guys from NSYNC, too. So I would run with interesting people that would kind of help the aesthetic. But how did that, how did that happen? You know oh, I God. Mean? I met Derek through uh, a guy named Charlie Hayes, who was the old third baseman for the Yankees. Charlie, if you're listening, I love you. Uh, Charlie came in and platooned for Wade Boggs, if you remember, the end yeah, of the 96 season. And that's how I met Daryl Strawberry, who became like a brother to me, um, to this day is like a brother to me. Uh, and I met a young Derek Jeter. I, I knew Derek his, his rookie year when we were both much younger guys than we are now. Um, so, like I said, several years after that, I knew this guy that owned this club, that 151 club. Uh, about a year into my going there all the time, he offered to let me buy in. We were in the process of doing that. I was doing all these amazing parties. I brought the entire Yankee team there literally three hours after they won the World Series. Mm. Literally. right? They, they won the Subway Series three, three hours later. I had the entire team. I brought Black Rob to come and sing Whoa. Remember Rob? Yeah, Black sure, Rob? sure. My friend uh, Buck Wild produced that. Absolutely. It was a big hit. Um, I mean, I just brought, 
I'm not tooting my own horn. I did some some badass parties back then. But how do how do you how do you get all the Yankees? Did you tell one person they told everybody? Like how the well, fuck listen, do you get I, all I, the I, Yankees? I, truth is, I was friends with a lot of guys in the starting lineup. So yeah, I mean, I did the the after party, and it was it was pretty goddamn great. It was. It was like legendary legend. There's a great episode of Sports Illustrated that covered it and had <laughs> great pictures of me and Derek there. Um, uh, and you're still friends from all those years. Yeah, to, yeah, with yeah. Derek, man, today. Derek and I are friends since '96. Absolutely. Um, so uh, at that point, Ronnie and I were going to. He, I was going to become a partner in that club. His partners, the truth is, they weren't appreciative of all the work he and I did. The truth is that he and I did everything. They weren't appreciative enough. He and I ended up selling our shares to them. We opened our own club called Suede on West 23rd. Suede was a tremendous success. Uh, People Magazine rated it the hottest club in New York. We had a great four-year run, uh, and that was my real entree into being, you know, a major owner. Uh, and that's Why it. Why only starting. four years? Because that's you know, that's kind of what nightclubs get, man. I mean, like, some of the clubs later on, like Marquee and, and One Oak, these guys have gotten like tremendous, tremendous, you know, long stretches. Uh, four years in, we were approaching the end of the run, which at that point you can either kind of like remodel and try to get a new life. But to be honest with you, a group came in and made us a really nice offer to buy the place. It just made more sense. Uh, I sold it. At the time, I had a girl that I was dating that was also putting a lot of pressure on me to get out of the business. Uh, the pressure was working. Why, so you could spend more time with her? That and so I could be around uh, the girls that go to the nightclubs a lot less. Okay. More importantly than spending time with her. Um, I opened up uh, an Italian restaurant, actually, right after that to kind of stay in the industry but segue out of nightclubs. Uh, was that was your first? Uh... First restaurant. What a nightmare. It was called Destino. Food was great. I did it with, uh, actually, with Justin uh, and a few wait, wait, friends. Wait, Justin Timberlake. Yes. But how does, did you even speak about, you, you mentioned that you met Justin or you met uh, NSYNC, but. I met Justin and I met the NSYNC guys through uh, a lady that we both knew. Uh, Justin and I remained very close friends. Uh, I told him I had this chef that I knew who was the executive chef at Rayo's, which is like the hardest table to get Absolutely. into in the city. So uh, he and his son and I and Justin and a few other partners, we did this restaurant called Destino on 50th and 1st. Uh, having said that, I knew absolutely nothing about the restaurant business. I knew about clubs. I didn't know about restaurants. So I was that guy that I just described to you a little while ago that has, you know, that had one part of the equation but didn't have the operational part of the sure. equation. Um, and it was a miserable experience. That girl that I told you about, <laughs> she left. Um, and here I was. You know, I was felt like I was in the middle of the forest in the middle of the night with no flashlight, no roadmap. Because let me tell you something, man. If you don't know what you're doing, you can die a quick death in restaurants. And we were doing a lot of business. We had Madonna, Leonardo DiCaprio, Mark Wahlberg eating there all the time, and we were making no money, man. And I just but how, how's that possible? Because if you don't know what you're doing, bro, never underestimate mismanagement mm. and not know what the hell you're doing. And I was just. You know, I thought the key to success was getting all these great people to come, and I knew how to do that. What I didn't know how to do is manage food costs and labor costs and all that stuff. That's the stuff I learned later on. But I, at that point, I didn't know it, and it was eating me alive. Mm. So I ended up selling that restaurant to our partners. We opened up – Justin and I opened up Southern Hospitality, which was – Barbecue stuff. Yeah, it was our Southern concept based on – you know, where he grew up uh, in Memphis and, you know, essentially bringing Memphis-style barbecue and, and, you know, southern, 
you know, basically all kinds of Southern hospitality routes uh, to New York hospitality. Uh, we did that. We opened that up. It's been 11 years now. Um, God bless. Congrats. Yeah, crazy. Uh, I can't believe it's been 11 years. So we did this great. It's sad. I just saw a picture the other day of the grand opening, and, like, his grandparents are there. My parents, unfortunately, both his grandparents have passed since. But it's a great, great night. Um, and, yeah, and it was basically supposed to represent – you know our friendship and the friendship of uh, a mutual friend of ours named Trace Ayala, we grew up with also, and again bring authentic Southern cuisine to New York. You know, uh, obviously people know who Justin Timberlake is, right? Yeah. Uh, probably one of the best uh, artists of uh, our time. I mean, just yeah, an incredibly talented individual. Uh, one thing I, I, you know, I never met him, but one thing I really love about him is, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I, I like his music a lot as, as well, but. I always love how much he paid attention to his sneakers, and he does and, do that. and finally the motherfucker got a chance for Jordan to acknowledge that with yeah. all those JT shit. It's good. To, I, well, let me tell you something, man. It's good to see when people who fuck with something like mm-hmm. that be acknowledged and, and 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 be able to get your own, you know, shoe. Yeah, those things it's, sold it's a, out. It's a fast, big deal. Man. Oh yeah, but but it's 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 a big deal, man. Yeah. And if you if you're like you know. When you're passionate about something like that, it's, mm-hmm. it, it, it's special to see. But for people listening, uh, you know, they know Timberlake. You sure. know, but what kind of person is he? Uh, you know, just beautiful. And I hate being the guy that says every guy that you just mentioned is beautiful. But you're mentioning people that are I'm particularly close with. Justin is is a wonderful guy. Uh, I'm blessed to to have such a great friend. We've we have really great times together. Uh, you know it's funny we just realized we're friends 20 years now mm. he just we, he was just my birthday a couple of weeks ago and he did this great speech and afterwards we go to the bar together and he's like how long have we been friends we did the math and it's, it's seriously it's, it's 20 years which is insanity um, so I know him since you know no strings attached in the sync days and and Britney Spears and the cornrows and all that stuff and mm. that mm. questionable outfit at the MTV awards and uh, we've both come a long way yeah, yeah. You know, even uh, I remember I came to Made in New York Pizza, um, and uh, Joey Fatone was there. <laughs> yeah. Joey. Joey is Joey's quite a guy. You still uh, talk to him, right? I love Joey. I love Joey. And what about Lance? You know, it's funny. I just called Lance for his birthday. Uh, I don't see or speak to Lance as often as we used to. I just called him for his birthday. Uh, I think a week ago, actually. You know, one thing I love about your story is uh, it's based upon failures. Let me interrupt you. Wait, go ahead. We'll get to the failures because there's plenty of those. Uh, I actually knew Lance before I knew Justin. Really? Yeah, I was friends with Lance first. Very few people remember that part. But, yeah, Lance was actually the introductory factor between me and Justin, mm-hmm. which I don't know what to make of that, but that's just Good guy, Lance? Yeah, sweetheart. Sweetheart yeah. of a guy. I frankly uh in in recent years we've kind of drifted apart i i still love him I, I think it's mutual but yeah i just haven't you know we don't see each other the way we used to but it seems like he's doing great and he's happily married and everything's yeah. great what about joey Fatone? joey's awesome man joey's always the life of the party yeah most fun guy in any room yeah yeah always awesome you know but back to what i was saying one thing i really admire about your story is just from being an entrepreneur a yeah. restaurateur somebody who just never gave up, honestly. Sure. Uh, you know, connecting the dots like crazy. One thing I really enjoy uh, about your story is 
the failures made you who you are today. When you really think about that. And I'm telling you this because sometimes when you're living your own life, you don't see this yeah. shit. But the failures, the things that didn't work, you never gave up, sure. you know, and, and put the blanket over your head and, and, and stayed there and, mm-hmm. and never came back outside. You know, you had to keep on going, you know. Um, so you open up Southern uh, Hospitality Barbecue with Justin Timberlake. Sure. You, you had experience in clubs that you yep. owned that were acquired, yeah. working bartender, you know. Now, let me ask you, were, you, were your parents, uh, like, happy? Like, were they like, oh, you know, you're making something for yourself? Because a lot of this, yeah. a lot of yeah. that is freelance business where, like, I, I don't know what he's doing, really. I mean, he owns a the, couple The of, truth you know. is they're blown away by it because yeah. it's, you know, they lived uh, a very different kind of life. Sure. You know, like my father's a teacher. My, they both lived, you know, that generation wasn't taught to shoot for the stars. Sure. Uh, they were taught, you know, get yourself a good income, get yourself a family, sure. wife, kids, everything like that. You know, get yourself a living. Retire by yourself that's a recliner. That's it. That's, put honestly, your piggies up in the air. That's what it is. That, that's what it is. So, they, you know, one of the great moments of my life that I remember is the opening of Southern Hospitality. We had media out there. It was like the Academy Awards. It was crazy. And I always remember looking at my father, like looking through when Justin and I got out of the car together. And it was this crazy row of paparazzi shooting and shooting and shooting. We were doing all these interviews. And seeing my father watch us uh, do the red carpet was an unbelievable moment. I actually told him that when we were having one of our many drunk shots uh, uh, on my birthday. I said, you know, that's a moment that I could never repay you for. Sure. Because no matter what we all say in our lives, we we still want... uh, to see our parents proud of us, sure, our sure. and that was that was really a great moment. Sure. So, you know, um, after, when did you? And this is another crazy fucking story. Like they don't keep on stopping. But when <laughs> did you meet Daryl Strawberry, and then open up a fucking restaurant? With yeah, him? Uh, is I that met, after uh, all this, or that's in the middle of it? So I met Straw uh, also in '96. He got traded. To the, a lot of good, really good players got traded to the Yankees towards the end of the season, which was the formation of the whole dynasty era. Uh, I met Straw. Straw and I became really good friends. Straw went through a lot. If you remember, he had cancer, sure. beat the cancer, went to jail. He and I stayed in touch throughout all of it. Uh, I never forgot getting the call from Straw telling me he had cancer, and he literally, the doctor was telling him he had a 9 out of 10 chance of death. And he was basically calling to say, I love you and goodbye, and I'm basically telling everyone I know I love you, and, and I'm probably not going to see you again. Horrible call. Uh, he one of the toughest guys that ever lived. He beat the cancer, thank God. He and I opened a restaurant together in Queens called Strawberry Sports Grill. But how did that even happen? You know, we just decided it was something we wanted to do together. He was back. He had beaten drugs and alcohol and all that kind of stuff. He was 10 years clean. uh, And it was just something that seemed like fun for him to do. I'd open up Southern Hospitality. He said, you know, I'd like the two of us to do a place. And I said, you know what, I'd love to. And what was the name? Strawberry Sports Grill. Here was the prop. The problem was it was a super concept. We executed it really well. The problem was, big mistake. Anyone thinking of opening a restaurant, write this down. We took a really bad location. I got talked into taking a space that uh, a friend of mine's family owned for a really cheap rent. And I was like, wow, how could we miss? The rent is so cheap. The way we could miss is this really desolate location. When I say talked into, I don't blame the guy. He's, he's a lovely guy. He just didn't realize how desolate location it was. When I tell you desolate, trust me when I tell you, if somebody killed Jimmy Hoffa at, in front of this street, he's, he's, he could still be laying in the middle of the street and still nobody's found him, and that's where he was all this time. It's like that desolate. Um, but it was 
in proximity to Shea Stadium, and I thought that would be enough. It wasn't enough. It was a great place. 81 times a year when the Mets were in town, people would come. When the Mets weren't in town, it wasn't enough. Uh, Daryl was the greatest part. He was there. He would press the flesh. He would talk to every table. He was the, the best of the best of the best. We did everything. Great people came to support us. Keith Hernandez came by. Gary Carter would come all the time, et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, no matter what we did, we could not get past the fact that our location completely handicapped us. So two and a half years into it, we had to shut it down, mm. which was a particularly hard experience because it was a really emotional place. It was something that I really wanted to build for Daryl. Uh, I really wanted it to be something that he could cling to. And the fact that we failed there, even though we tried so hard, and we had this great opening. Justin came in. He, like, left the set of his movie to come and, you know, come to the opening. And Bernie Williams came and Tino Martinez. And we put so much into it. And... For whatever reason, closing that was really hard for us. And uh, I always remember uh, the final night. I told Straw, I'm like, listen, we got to go and tell the staff we're closing and say goodbye. And he didn't want to go. And I said, Straw, we, we got to face this. And he agreed. And we, we two of us go out to Queens. And we go and we get the staff together and we tell them that I'm sorry that this is our last night. We're closing the whole bit. Uh, and the two of us go to the parking lot, and we're two grown men right afterwards. Uh, Daryl actually smoked at the time, so he goes, I need a cigarette. We, we go outside, and the two of us just look at each other, no words exchanged. And at like almost at the same time, the two of us just break down and start crying, two grown men, yeah. without saying a word. We just start crying. And uh, I said, listen, we got to get this together. we got to go back inside and say goodbye. And we did, and we went to say goodbye, and then we— the ride from Queens back to Manhattan was like the longest ride ever. We didn't say a word. And then he called me uh, on the flight back, and he just told me he was crying to his wife. It was a really sad, sad time for us. Because, um, again, it was like an emotional pro- sure. project. And you know what? We're all going to go through those. You know, that's part of being an entrepreneur. Unless you're one of the lucky people that opens one, does one business, that one hits, you never do anything else. You know, you know, our friend Gary says this, you know, like being an entrepreneur is not glamorous. Sure. It's fucking hard. Socially, it seems that way, but it's not. It seems that way. It seems like, you know, you're the cool guy in the room. Man, we're the ones that work the hardest. We're the ones that have the least amount of like fun times and great moments. And it's I think I think if there's anything Gary gets right, and I think he gets a lot right. But if there's something that he and I really agree on, you know, being a business owner, being an entrepreneur, it's the people of the world that, that don't go through that and do work jobs and in no way am I am I you know belittling that it's a completely different kind of existence and the pain of having a business that's emotionally attached to you and closing it down and I closed two in one year I closed the first branch of Southern Hospitality within six months of that that was a hard year for me man and the hardest part was having to tell good people that worked for us it didn't do anything wrong that we had to close and we had to put them out of work. And that is, it's it's harder than I can describe. And it's a feeling that I don't wish on anybody of having to go to people that did nothing, that worked their asses off, that gave you their all and you look at them, you say, I know you gave it your all, but we still failed. And I'm sorry, it's no reflection on you. I tried to put it on me, but it's like, it just was what it was. Sure. And there was no, there's there are moments in your life where there's, there's nothing good you can make of something. Sure. It's just bad. How long did uh, uh, did you and Darrow's restaurant stay open for? Uh, Two, two and a half years. 
Okay. I remember you saying that uh, you kind of like maybe even dragged it out. It should have closed down It's earlier. absolutely true. And that's true of the, that restaurant, too. Uh, I I fought like hell to keep it open. Uh, I started doing things that when restaurants start doing Groupon and things like that, you just know that it's all over and it's, yeah. you're doing stupid things. And I, I just didn't want to accept it. And I, I really didn't want to put those people out of work. And I didn't. I just kept trying to fight and find a way. And sure. the truth is... I should have accepted a year prior and saved myself a sum of money, which I don't even want to admit to here, uh, that both those play- businesses, you didn't realize you were out of business before you were out of business. Sure. And I, I equate it to like having your grandmother on one of those life support machines where they're dead, but you have a machine that keeps the heart going beep, sure, sure. beep, but she's dead. Did, did, did uh, you know, you and Daryl still obviously still stay yeah, friends. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been amazing to see, uh, you know, I've actually sat down with Daryl uh, yeah. with Combat Jack. Mm-hmm. And we had a great episode. Uh, rest in peace uh, to my brother, yeah. uh, Combat. But, um, you know, it's been amazing to see his climb, though, you know, being a minister. Sure. Uh, being someone who really uh, has changed his whole life around. Daryl's a real deal, bro. Yeah. Daryl and his wife are a real deal. You know, I think there's there's certain people that you see that every word out of their mouth is God and Jesus and everything. It's real with, with Daryl. Daryl Daryl foregoes, you know, the big jobs, working Major League Baseball, any of that kind of stuff. He has no desire for it. What Daryl wants is to help kids fight opioid addiction, to grow his ministry, and to help people. Mm. He lives in a very modest house. He could make a lot more money doing other things. That is not what Daryl wants in his life. Daryl's mission is real. Daryl goes to churches every weekend. He goes to speak in front of Daryl. Uh, my my partner Nelson, who's also like my brother, uh, he and his wife Stacy take Daryl around to the local schools to speak to kids about because the opioid addiction is it's sure, it's sure. killing so it's, us. It's, it's, it's like the biggest crack. It's an epidemic, yeah. and this is the thing that Daryl's chosen to to make his mission. And he just and he is attacking. He's going to these high schools and he's speaking to these kids and talking to them about it, and. It's real with Daryl. He's like, a good he fellow. Oh man, he is. If I don't, you know, to anyone that believes in God, where they don't, it's it's real in Daryl, and he truly believes that he is doing God's work, and I believe he is. You've seen him recently? Yeah, I saw Straw three, four weeks ago. Okay. I, I see him every time he's in New York, and he's in pretty frequently. Yeah, it's a good fellow. You know what, Internet? Let's take a quick break. I mean, there's so much to your journey. Yeah. Uh, the boy from New York City. Yeah. Uh, Aton Sugarman. In the building. Internet's not going nowhere. We'll be right back. Cheer. Hey, this is Eugene Rem, co-founder of Catch Restaurants and Rumble Boxing, and you're locked into the Premium Pete Show. And we're back sitting here with my friend, Aton Sugarman, the boy from New York City. Man, listen, the the the, the true OG plug, hmm. uh, the doc connector, yeah. the uh, restaurateur, the entrepreneur. Wow. The, I love the, all this. The, 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 the forget about it. Listen, as, yeah. as uh, an Italian... Uh, we can't go by without hearing a story about uh, John Gotti. Oh, boy. Uh, rest in peace. Sure. Uh, what's up with I, John Gotti? I only have one of those. Okay, tell me. So, uh, like everything else in my life, this goes back to Tommy Lasorda. So, uh, Tommy and I were having dinner one night at a place called Sfuzzi's, which doesn't exist anymore, on 66th Street. Uh, this was towards the end of John's, Mr. Gotti's reign before he went to jail. Uh, we were having dinner with a good friend of ours who's passed named Charlie Camella, who I love dearly. Charlie was friends with John. John walks in the restaurant. Uh, he sees Tommy Lasorda. Uh, it was kind of like a mutual admiration. Sure. Uh, 
they think they both wanted to say hello to each other. Tommy was uh, Charlie was the intermediary. John comes to the table and says hello, and he tells Tommy, goes, listen, I want you to know what you mean to the Italian people. I want you to know what you mean to baseball and what, what it means to the Italians and, you know, how proud we are of you and, you know, two World Series rings, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it's, and we have a great conversation. He comes and he sits at the table with us, and, and Tommy invites him, and he stays with us for about two hours. He picks up the check and insists on paying for everybody. Uh, and he's great. And then on the way out, he says something to Tommy. He's sitting right next to me. He says something to Tommy about me. And Tommy used to love – it was a joke, but he would love making, like, little disparaging jokes. But it, it, if you knew Tommy, you know that's his way of showing sure, he loves sure. you, you know? And uh, I said, oh, okay, so like that. And then someone says, are you going to take that from Tommy? And I go, what am I going to do? He's like a father, you know, like that. And and John was like – he goes, loyalty, loyalty. I like that. And then he puts his arm around me and goes, always remember, loyalty, loyalty above all else. I always remember that. That was my only interaction with him ever. So, so you picked up the whole fucking is, bill? Yeah, we said. No, I didn't. Gotti. No, he picked up the whole thing. He did. So years later, I met Gotti Jr. Okay, nice. Uh, and he came to Hunt and Fish Club, and he's a really, really nice guy. And at the time, they were filming the movie about his dad, and Travolta was playing him. He and Travolta had dinner, and afterwards, he stayed, and we had drinks. And I told him that story, and he said that he'd heard the story. He'd heard the story about from his dad about the night he met Lasorda. And I told him what he said. He goes, yeah, dad was, dad was big on loyalty. And uh, and Junior's a great guy. Yeah, Junior's wonderful. He comes to the restaurant. He's hunting fish. Super, yeah, he's a super nice guy. Now hunting fish is a, another uh, restaurant that you own, and that's yeah. what about five years now. It'll be five years uh, November. Absolutely. I right, listen. Hunting fish is uh, internet's. If you're ever in New York, first of all, you live in New York City, and you and, and you've been there, then you know what the fuck I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. If you ha- if you're coming out of town and you want to know a spot to go to, that has just great seafood, great steak, great pork chops, great. Listen, nice I, okay, get the oysters, yeah. okay, and and it's, it's just a special place, Hunt and Fish Club. Thanks, and, and No, really, I, I'm being dead on, I'm dead on, I love it. I've been there a couple of times, um, you know, I'm a fan of it, but more importantly, uh, you know, we're talking about Gotti, we're talking about, oh, oh you know what, speaking of Gotti, though, yeah. look, I'm very happy that uh, the Gotti family was able to get, uh, you know, a deal with the movie, I'm sure that they got, you know, uh, sure. royalties off that or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, as a movie buff, uh, Gotti with Armand Asante in HBO, which is oh, crazy. that was great, wasn't it? It never released in theaters, just HBO. I'm dead serious. Nothing against the guy's love and, and, and blessings to him, but that fucking movie. That was a great was film. Amazing. He yeah. played the shit out of, he was awesome. uh, of the role. And, yeah. and even even Neil Delacroix was in there. I forget this guy's name. Uh, Anthony Quinn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, incredible. I mean, just... I, look, H- let me HBO tell you does great stuff. Yeah, listen, and, and and you know why I you know why they do great stuff, and I'm gonna tell you this. Even from the Sopranos, I'm a true. I grew up in Brooklyn, Italian. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. I grew up. I seen. I've been around everything. I like, growing up. When Sopranos just came out, the fear I had that it was gonna be cardboard for gazy gangsters. Mm-hmm. There's a thin line people get with Italians, where it's like, hey, oh, forget about sure. it. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like you're some fucking schlep. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Sopranos was so real and yeah. believing and organic and authentic, yeah. and 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 I really feel like even the Gotti movie. I just felt like it was it was a great movie, and I just, I love the history and a lot of it I knew from growing up in the neighborhood. Yeah, so it was a beautiful thing. But moving forward, yeah, to add to the list, you then open up Hunt and Fish Club. I do. Uh, why? And with who? You know what? I I had I had in my head at the time that. Uh, I'd opened up Casual Concepts, and I really wanted to do a steakhouse, and I wanted it to be... I always said I wanted it to be the kind of place that I thought Frank would like to go that, you know, kind of felt old, like a fusion of old school and new school. Uh, 
first class steak and seafood concepts, great wine, great cocktails, great music, you know, champagne, you know, chandelier, marble, sure. the whole bit. And uh, hopefully we achieved a lot of that. So we opened up, like I said, four and a half years ago. Thank God we we you know, we did twelve percent more this year than we did the year before. God bless. Yeah, people seem to really like it. Now, so one thing lucky. I learned about hunting fish covers is like fucking twenty nine investors. Is that there's true? a lot of partners. What the fuck? Yeah, there's what a lot of partners. Uh, there's just are. I mean, we have a lot of people that uh, wanted to get involved, and they buy. Who is it? Public knowledge of uh, some of the people. There's the there's one everyone knows about. So uh, my my good friend Anthony Scaramucci is a partner. People love saying it's his place. He is one of our partners. Very proud that he's one of our partners. We're friends a very long time. Uh, having said that, it's all of our place. Uh, it's actually the majority owners are me and my partner Nelson Braff. Okay. Um, but Anthony is one of our partners, and he's great, and he's obviously the highest profile guy. Yeah. We all did. remember his didn't 11, he get his eleven days in the White House. <clears throat> yeah. Then he get who did he get fired by? Uh, Trump. Mr. Trump. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he was the communications Who's that, director. Scaramucci? Scar- Anthony Scaramucci, yeah. What the fuck happened? Why, I, I don't even follow politics like that. I, well, mean, I heard of this He guy. was the communications director. He did an interview where he used some foul language. As a result of that, uh, they terminated his position. So he was only in, in his position for 11 days. But uh, It's a short tenure. It was a short tenure. It was a short tenure. But uh, Anthony's back. He's doing great. Uh, Isn't Gary an uh, investor? In Gary, fish? I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that. Yeah, Gary is one of our partners. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Listen, Hunting Fish Club is a. It, it's crazy to see how many fucking. And then you move on. Well, well, before you even get to that, even DJ Clue. Yeah. Okay. Who and, and and here's the thing I want on people to understand about your journey, which yeah. is so special, and we're gonna get to it more. Just being organic, and this is why I got a lot of love for you too. Being a, a, just a real good guy. Sure. You know Clue for many, many years. Right? I know Clue also since 1996. The funny thing is we also cannot remember exactly where we met. Mm. Can't remember. Uh, it's either 95 or 96. We can't remember the, the genesis of it. Uh, but, yeah, we go back very long way. Yeah. It's one of my really how, good how, how does a relationship like that last so long? Uh, you know, I don't know. How does any good friendship last so long? I think we just, uh, you know— We've been there. Oh, people who listen and who know. Maybe some people who know. Well, like, you know, actually, yeah. you know, he and I actually had a club together too. I had a club, a little known fact. I had a club in Harlem. Me and Clue and Timberland uh, had a club in Harlem called Cherry Lounge. Really? Yeah, that lasted under a year. Uh, that was not one of my best ideas. Um, but yeah, it was a fun club uh, for a little while. Unfortunately, we couldn't maintain it. Um, but yeah, Clue and I were partners there, and. You know, we're good friends. We've done some great parties and events together, and uh, he's actually involved in my pizza place. Made in New York? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're, we're, we're great friends. For people who know Clue, they know, you know, he's a you know, New York City legendary DJ. No question. Legendary mixtapes. Yeah. Cuminade. Uh, One of the you only know, DJs to ever go platinum. Oh, man. I mean, just a, a, definitely a good fella, but yeah. w- what would you say for people who, you know, because that's all they really know about Clue. Clue's like a, almost like a private person, I would say. Uh, I mean, listen, he's had he's had an incredible hit. Like I say, he's one of the few guys to go platinum. He's done some really big hit songs uh, with Mariah Carey, uh, Jay-Z. I mean, he was... No, of course people know. I mean, people listen who, who oh, what, know that. You know, saying, about him. Listen, he's a sweetheart of a guy. He's, you know, I'm sorry I keep using that word about people, but, you know, he is. He's a great guy. Uh, he's a lot of fun. Like I said, we've done some really great parties. Clue introduced me to Biggie Smalls. Really? Yeah. Clue took me to see Biggie's last New York show, which was on the Intrepid. Uh, shortly after that, 
uh, he was promoting the uh, the new album. Shortly after that, he went to L.A. and it got and got killed. Clue was actually with him out there in L.A. at that party at that uh, what was the car museum or something like yeah, that. Yeah, in L.A. Yeah, uh, they were they were they were pretty close. Um, but yeah, I met Biggie that night. It was a great great show. Uh, and within a month of that, he'd gotten killed. Yeah, rest yeah. in peace, Big. Yeah, B.I.G. forever, Absolutely. Brooklyn. You know, but so 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 now <laughs> there's so many different fucking things, bro. Your journey is a uh, your, your journey is uh, actually somebody needs an aspirin to uh, pay attention to. No, it. I do. You know, now now you have now is is Tim Blake uh, part of a uh, hunting fish too? He's not. Okay, and and uh, but he's part of Southern Hospitality. Absolutely. No, made in New York. Uh, no, he's not. He just eats the pizza. Okay, okay. Well, listen, it's a good pizza. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, but what made you... Okay, here's the thing, right? Sure. And you spoke a lot about failures. We'll get more into that because mm-hmm. it made you the person you are today. In New York City, for people listening who don't know, there's a hundred fucking pizza spots. Mm-hmm. There's a pizza spot on every other block. Yeah. Okay? What makes you decide to fucking open up a pizza spot? I want to open a pizza place because it's, you know, it's it's a passion food of mine. Uh, the truth is, I just, it was something I always kind of wanted to do. My partner, Ronnie, had a background in it. Uh, you know, my first Instagram handle used to say lover of life and pizza, not necessarily in that order. Mm. And it just felt like something I wanted to do. And I didn't want to do like one of the, like, you know, the Neapolitan type places. I wanted to do the place, the pizza that I grew up with. I wanted to do like a New York style slice. So fold like a baseball glove. Just like that. So hence made New York pizza. Here we are. Yeah, and it's funny too because when you just opened up, there was fucking so much controversy. There was because of uh, Prince Street slice. Pizza. Yeah, because you guys have the uh, pepperoni slice, the spicy one. Which yeah, you know, I, I'm not the biggest pepperoni guy, but mm-hmm. uh, I tried it, and, and uh, you know, Benson tried it. Who's on uh, my team and uh, uh, Isaiah, and they loved it. Yeah. I love the white slice. The white square is insane. Yeah. Um, but what what the fuck happened that there was like? So long story short. Uh, the guy who works for me, his name is Frank, was the pizzaiolo for Prince Street Pizza. He opened Prince Street Pizza. He developed all their recipes. He came to work. So when we opened up the place, Eater wrote a, a article. So he left Prince Street Pizza. He left Prince Street. He, again, he did not leave Prince Street to come work for me. He had a falling out with that guy. It just happened to coincide that it happened during the time frame that I was building uh, Made in New York. So he came to work for me. Uh, yes, he developed the recipe, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, there was a similarity to what's going on at, at Prince Street Pizza. So the owner of Prince Street call, calls Eater. They call him, I'm sorry, they call the owner of Prince Street for a comment, and he says that the guy stole his recipes, and we stole his recipes, and he's filing a lawsuit, et cetera, et cetera. Within the hour, there's news trucks all in front of the pizzeria. My publicist says to me, he goes, listen, you're going to have to deal with this. You're going to have to make a comment. Otherwise, no one's going to know what the truth is. Fine. So, literally, from the time I got the first call, uh, I'm on seven news shows in one night. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, having to talk about the most ridiculous news story of all time. Because this guy's got in his head that he invented pepperoni pizza. So, uh, needless to say, no lawsuit ever happened. Well, uh, didn't you mention to me one time because you can't uh, sue for a There tr- is recipe. no, yes, there is no trademark or copywriting of recipes. It doesn't exist. There is no... Uh, it doesn't exist. You know, recipes, like, once there's one grain of salt difference, then it's a different recipe. Uh, and the truth is, my guy created 
those recipes anyway. What about the soup Nazi? He didn't create the recipes? Well, I don't know. You'd have to ask him. Okay. But my guy created the recipes that we use. In addition, there are changes. They're not identical to the ones of Prince Street Pizza. But uh, I don't know why he reacted so badly. I would be happy to talk to him about it at some point. It's all calm you down. Still, you still, he, nobody, you guys still never spoke? No, I've never spoken to him. I remember when I remember the news too was also reporting like it was like a fucking war. Yeah, you know what I mean, like like like. Well, they made a lot a big, of it. Yeah, yeah a big they, a big budella, a big yeah, beef. Yeah, the guy from uh, from what he called uh, Dave from Barstool made a whole big story about that and the pepperoni wars and all that kind of stuff. And that's the, everyone called it the pepperoni wars. No, I've never seen the guy from Prince Street. I haven't said that. I think Prince Street's a great place and they do a great job. And I would talk to him anytime. Uh, I don't know why they're so upset. They're doing great, and they have lines down the block, and they should be happy as hell. Um, I think there's enough room for all of us to sure. sell pizza and be happy. For sure. But, yeah, that was the story. I was, I'd was, never experienced something like that. So. Well, shouts to Prince Street Pizza. Yeah, thank God they're doing well. We're doing well, and all's, all's well. So Made in New York Pizza has a location uptown, right? Yeah, 80th and Amsterdam. Uh, you plan on opening more locations? Yeah, yeah we're looking for more locations now. Uh, we're Thank God we're doing really well with that, and I'd love to do, I'd love to do them all over the city. For, for people listening who may not know, and I never pronounced this fucking guy's name right, uh, but is it Bo Dito? Bo, Bo yeah. I know some of it, for, but let me exit the way I exit. Who the fuck is Bo Dito? Bo is the most decorated police officer in NYPD history. If okay. You, if you go back to the 70s, it's a famous case of a nun getting raped in Harlem, and Bo solved that case. They did a movie about him called One Tough Cop. He ran for mayor, did not succeed, clearly. Um, legendary, legendary New York detective. Uh, another friend of mine for 20-plus years. And how, how did you even uh, how'd you meet him? I met Bo uh, also through the great Tommy Lasorda, like everything else in my life. God, Tommy Lasorda is the real yeah. fucking plug. All roads lead to Tommy. But let me ask you, why do you... And I mean this respectfully, but mm -hmm. why do you think so many celebrities and so many powerful people and big people, I mean, you could go down the line of Derek Jeter and Justin Timberlake and and and, 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 and Sync and, you know, so many, I mean, there's so many fucking people, you know, you, could go, you know, why do you think they, I guess, trust you to do business or, or or respect you like you know like because the point I'm trying to make is there's so many in the world we live this you know you got to get see here's the thing yeah you're a guy that has a lot of long relationships sure but in the beginning nobody knows that's gonna happen like that yeah. sometimes it could be people think maybe you have an ulterior motive or or you know sometimes people are, don't open up to bring everybody in it's not easy mm -hmm. to you know what I mean like you you've been that guy to know like and get cool with all the people in that camp. You know what I mean? And and that doesn't happen overnight. You're and never, that and sometimes you never yeah. cool with all the people in that camp. But well, you know, yeah. you, you know the the ins and outs, so to speak. You know what? I I have been lucky. And the, the truth, is, listen, we're only for whatever reason we're only focusing on on bold faced names. Um, I've been lucky to have a lot of great friends in my life. Some of them are are like that. I think a lot of it is from the nature of being in the nightclub and restaurant business in New York, which has that kind of, you know, a clientele and an audience. And a lot of those relationships, uh, to some extent, blossom through that. Um, you know, you know, a lot of the people in this field also have similar relationships. Like our friend Eugene has a lot of those relationships. Uh, also, you know, 
Richie Akiva, who owns One Oak, has a lot of those. You know, like it's just by the nature of that business, you meet a lot of those people and you foster those relationships because they know that they can trust you and that you, you know, show discretion, et cetera. You know, when you speak of Eugene Rim, uh, yeah. it's funny because I know you don't like to fly. And I remember seeing mm-hmm. uh, you go to uh, the opening yeah. of Catch Las Vegas Absolutely. to support him. Go, and you went right in and right out. Now, for somebody who doesn't like to fly, and it's, and, and you know, also somebody who's a restaurateur himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we had Eugene on, a friend of ours, yeah, great awesome. guy. Uh, that says a lot about you. Thanks, buddy. That you went to like, like I mean that. You one thing I will say, if anybody yeah. could get from this episode, is not only are you well connected, <laughs> uh, learn from your failures, failures, you're also a good friend. Well, listen, and, Eugene's a great guy, and that was a very big moment for him because. I've known him for a very long time. I knew Eugene when he worked for Randy Gerber, which is quite a while back. I remember Eugene was partners with a guy named Andrew Wintner, and they they used to have a little business card. He would come to Suede, and he was this nice, polite little kid, and you know he would tell me about his big plans, and he was always a nice guy. And you know to watch his career unfold and to watch who he's become, uh, and he's you know married to this wonderful girl and. You know, from catch to rumble, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is it's one amazing. of the. Let me tell you something. He's one of the really influential people in the hospitality industry, in the uh, what do you call it? It's not the gym. I guess health club industry, whatever yeah, you want to call fitness. it. Fitness. Yeah, fitness industry. I mean, he is. I mean, Rumble is absolutely amazing, yeah. and the way that's grown, and the way it's going to continue growing. Uh, he's a visionary guy, and by the way, so is his partner Mark and. You know, I'm so happy for him. I'm so so. This was a big moment for me. But you know, like somehow, one of them said this. I'm not sure, I think it was Eugene that having that place in Vegas, like having that big place right on the Strip of Vegas, it really kind of cements you as being kind of kind of like a big time owner in sure. the game. And it was a big moment for him. And without pushing me, he just said, you know, it would really mean a lot to me if you came. I never, it's so rare I hear from Mark, and, you know, we're friendly, but I just don't hear from him often, and he actually wrote me, he goes, you know, it would mean a lot to both of us if you were there. And I went to my friend Mike, and we both said, look, this is, we gotta go. This is, so, yeah, it's exactly right. I was so busy. I jumped on a plane. I got off the plane. It was the Halloween party. I put my costume on, went, 6 a.m., caught the first thing smoking out. You didn't need no costume. You went by yourself. You well, know? That's your own mask. That's it. <laughs> I'm playing with you. That's the Andrew um, Club owner. No, nah, no. Nah, Eugene, let me tell you something, man. We had him on a great episode, great person. Yeah, man. Um, one thing that inspires me is that here's a guy, a Russian. Uh, mm-hmm. His parents came. Absolutely. They had fucking nothing. No question. You know what I mean? Uh, English is the second yeah, language. Yeah. You know what I mean, yeah. and and to see his success, I love shit like that. No question. And and so yeah, and I and, and again, like I think what I want the internets to to get when they listen to this episode, not only like I said, the failures, the restaurant, the well connected. Listen, he went through it too. I know yeah. he told you about it. You know, I remember a point where he closed, I think, three places down yeah. in one year, and his greatest success came shortly after that, which is one of the incredible parts of the story. Yeah, you know, I remember that being a really difficult time. I remember him closing those places and thinking to myself, man, this this has got to be rough. Because, you know, the people who aren't in this industry don't realize what an emotional thing it is. I th- somehow I think closing a restaurant is harder than closing a regular business. I can't quantify that. 
I can't explain why. I just think it is. I think it's be somehow it's a more emotional business. You know how people like I give you an example like you know I've been divorced uh, before, so or, or, you know, or I've been in a bad relationship before. Mm-hmm. So it's like the next relationship you go into, it's like you almost like have your guard up, right? Mm-hmm. And you're worried like is, yeah. is this person going to do this to me? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you you had a couple closures obviously with bars, but even like with Darryl Strawberry's restaurant, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And and after that, when you when, when you close it, like. And, and then you open up another one. Are you are you in the back of your mind? Are you worried, like because yeah, you just for sure. yeah? Listen, you always fear failure. You always do. Uh, it probably works for you because it makes you work harder. Somewhere in my mind, I'm always afraid I'm going to be a poor kid and I'm going to have to go back and ask my parents to move back in their apartment again. And whether that's realistic or not, it's a real fear in my mind. So and what do you do to defeat that? Work hard. You work hard and you keep working hard and you keep trying to do new things but somewhere you know that that is on my mind at some point every day of my life mm-hmm. at some point every day of my life yeah the fear of of failing to such a degree that I can't be me anymore and can't live the life that I, that I need to live and somehow that everything will fall apart and I, I won't have options and I'll have to call my father and say hey, can I can I come back home that absolutely lives within my mind and it lives within my fears, and it keeps me up at night, and that's real. And no matter what good happens in my life, that doesn't go away. You know, there's a, a, another establishment called the White House, uh, White, White yeah, Horse, White Horse Tavern, it's White yeah. Horse Tavern. Yeah. And what w- what happened with that? Because it closed down, and then you uh, bought it. Like, explain, no, what, explain what happened is so White Horse Tavern is the second consecutively, uh, second oldest consecutive running restaurant in New York since 1880. Um, Fuck. Legendary, bro. Legendary place. What makes White Horse so historic is uh, Dylan Thomas, one of the most important poets of all time. That was his favorite pub. He would go there and he'd write his poetry at the bar. And there's famous pictures of him hanging out there. And Bob Dylan and Jim Morrison and Jack Kerouac and et cetera, et cetera. And it's looked at as like this historic literary place and it's historic rock and roll place. And again, you know, as we see all these amazing New York, you know, landmarks crumble, this one place has withstood the test of times. Second oldest. It's like there's two restaurant landmarks in New York, and this is one of them. So the building sold. Recently? Uh, yeah. The owner of the building had had enough. He sold it. Uh, and then I happened to know the broker that did the deal, and I called him and said, I, I need to have this space. I just need to. Um, I outbid another group I paid way more than I should have just because I had to have it bro I mean it's it's such an important if you know anything about me and I know you know a lot you know how important New York and the history of New York is to me the fact that this place that was such a New York institution was available I I couldn't have this go to some other group like this is supposed to go to me it's funny because I remember seeing on Instagram that uh, um, you know um Drea, um, yeah. Drea, how do you say her last name again? Drea De Matteo. Yeah, which many people may know her as on, on The Sopranos. As Adriana, yeah. you know, Chrissy's a girlfriend. Yeah. Right. And on, on uh, you know, right, right, right. shouts to Michael Imperial. Absolutely. Um, Even though he killed Cosette. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, and, and I remember seeing where she, I guess she puts uh, the picture of White, ha- uh, White Horse Tavern on Instagram. Yeah, it's it was, and, and, and was heartbroken that it was broken down and, and mm-hmm. considered a gentrification sure. that it was being bought yep. over. And then you made a stink to let her, well, not a stink, but. You, I made it, yeah, I commented back. You know what? Let me tell you something. She was super fair. 
Yeah. And you know what? She wrote about it, and Courtney Love wrote about it, and Debbie Mazur, and I, she and Debbie both saw the comments that I wrote and wrote me back on DM and were super fair and amended what they wrote. And listen, it's like a lot of, it, this has been such a big media item, and so many people have been so concerned. And I'll tell you what, I, I, I did a post today. I said, what's really bothered me about this is so many people have written, you know, save the white horse, what's going to happen? And none of them have contacted me to ask me what my plans were. What I like so much about Drea and about Debbie is they did do that, is they did write that. And then when I wrote something, they had a monologue, I mean, a dialogue with me, rather, uh, and talked about what my plans were and heard me out with an open mind. Because I feel like so many people just ran to the media. And instead of hearing me out, and if, if you know me, you know desecrating a New York landmark would be the last goddamn sure, thing sure, on sure. earth I would do. The reason I did this and took a space, listen, let me tell you something. I wasn't going to do another restaurant for a while. I was going to expand the pizzerias. I was going to do another eight, ten of these around the city. I was going to relax for a little while because I got to tell you something. That's a much easier business than the restaurant business, and it's nicely profitable. And I was really happy with it. And I was enjoying it. And I was going to do a bunch of those. I'm still going to do that, but I wasn't going to do another restaurant for a little while. This happened, and I could not say no. This is one of the most important places in New York history, and let me tell you something. And I said this in front of the community board when I went to speak for my liquor license. If I hadn't taken this. They can't be sure that the guy who did take it would have the kind of reverence for it that I would. And God forbid this would have turned into a Chase Bank or a Starbucks, like so many other great places in New York, because we would have really lost a lot. And I think, you know, I, I, I just don't understand why so many people have marched and protested and gone to the media. And like I said, if they knew me, they would know that I'm the guy. You couldn't get anyone better for this sure. than me. Because... You know, I'm the biggest New York lover that there is. So, like I said, I love Drea and I love Debbie so, Mazur. And I don't even know them just because they amended their statements and both said they're so happy with what they hear my plans are. For I'm the sure they'll be at the opening. You I know, so. <laughs> so so it's going to become, you know, uh, how, how many people does this seat? Whitehorse is a small place, man. It, only has, it currently has 55 seats, plus it has one of the la- largest outdoor seating areas in the city. It's nice. got 78 on the outside. Wow. And let me tell you something. I'm not really going to change much about it. It needs a cleanup. It needs – you got to fix some things. I mean, it's an old, old place. Uh, it just needs to be tuned up. Uh, beyond that, you know, I'm going to leave the place the way it is. I mean, sure. the, the same bar that Dylan Thomas drank at, the same with a famous picture of him leaning against that bar. Sure. That bar is still there. That bar is going to be there forever as far as I'm concerned. And mm-hmm. so the floor, and so like anything that historic that's been there, I wouldn't dream of touching that. Having said that, tables and chairs will beat up. I'm gonna, res- I'm gonna change sure. that. The air conditioning needs fixing. I'm gonna change that. Bathrooms could use a little fixing. I'm gonna change that. Beyond that, it's gonna be the same White Horse Tavern. The people don't have to worry. I'm, I'm proud to be the new owner, and it's, I'm gonna maintain and preserve the heritage of that place. Oh, congratulations! Thanks, buddy. You know, a lot of people. As we wind this episode down, a lot of people. Uh, you know, like you said, think of ideas, and you know, and, and it's hard the restaurant business. How, you know, how how expensive is it with the liquor license and you know uh, property and leases and and even the margin of food? Like, how how, how tough is the restaurant business for people? Like, That's we what, broke it down a little bit, but it's how, the hardest. Yeah. It's the absolute hardest. I got news for you. There, sadly, I think you're going to see. A lot of veteran and really good food operators straying away from doing places in New York. They just did an article the other day that I posted where it said New New York is no longer the restaurant capital of America. And I I hate to say it, I think that that's true. It's so 
prohibitive. So what is? Well, let me tell you something. There's a guy who I know named Willie Deagle. Willie's got Uncle Jack's steakhouses, right? He just closed one of them down. He's got one left. And he opened two in Atlanta. And he said to me, he goes, you know, I got to tell you, man. He goes, the places I have in Atlanta do a third less top line revenue, okay? A third less in gross. And they net more. He goes, I have a friendly government out there that welcomes new business. You know, they give me tax breaks. The minimum wage isn't what it is here. I have landlords that cooperate with me and help me with build-outs. I'm thrilled with what I'm doing out there. In New York, I'm dying. Sure. Out there, I'm enjoying being in the restaurant business again. That's a sad thing because New York used to be the coolest place in the world. It was where you came to establish your brands. And the truth is you're seeing such great places to go out of business because, you know, between the rents and everything the government puts on us, you have such a small chance to succeed. You have to hit such a home run to to survive. Uh, you're, that's why you're seeing a lot of big companies move to the Midwest and just and sure. New York isn't their first choice anymore. You know, some people hate when they hear this, and I, I want to hear your uh, opinion. But uh, sometimes, I, like, I'll ask you, like, what's your opinion for somebody out there who wants to open up a restaurant? And some people will say, don't do it, right? And then the people are like, well, you know, I've heard this before. Like, yeah. You know, people are like, well, you, you did it. Like, why, you know, why are you telling people not to do it? Not saying you are. I'm just speaking in general. What is your advice for people out there uh, listening, wherever, that want to open up uh, a restaurant, that want to open up a bar, that want to – like, what's your advice for them? Okay. I would understand why some people say don't do it. Here's what I would say. I would say if you're not prepared to completely devote your life to it, uh, and again, accept the premise that you're a servant. Don't feel like you're some king walking around there. You're a servant. You're going to work harder than everybody else in there. And by the way, I always say this. I feel like if I equate it to another job, I feel like you're the guy that owns the soup kitchen and makes the soup. And by the way... You make the soup, you pay for the soup, you serve the soup, and if there happens to not be any soup left for you to eat anymore, no one's going to care, and nobody's going to cry, and too fucking bad. Mm. And that's the way it is. Mm. And that's the restaurant business. Because believe me when I tell you, the first day your check bounces on one of your staff, they are walking the fuck out of there. And it's, well, they should. They have families, you know? If you're an owner that can't take a penny out, and God forbid, you have to go in your bank account and keep putting money in to keep the place afloat and I've done that and trust me Eugene's done that and a lot of other good people have done that no one's going to cry for you no one's going to care and yet somehow the perception's going to be you're this big bad owner taking advantage of everybody and you're making tons of money it's just not the truth you know people like me get into this business because we have a passion for it and we enjoy serving people and seeing them happy and you know we enjoy you know a great steak special that we have one day and seeing the reaction to it and it's a shame that we live in this great city, but still, I think the government has kind of lost, they've lost sight of what the restaurant and hospitality industry mean to this city, and they've made it very difficult to survive. Um, I wish they would take it more into consideration. Mm-hmm. Man, let me tell you, man, uh, the journey is, 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 is so hard to do. You know, it's funny because people like you, it's hard to cover everything. Yeah. But I think... Uh, you know, we we gave a bright idea of like the journey of uh, of what it takes to make it, but also what it takes to never just give up. Yeah. You know, and I think that to me, to be honest with you, that's what uh, I admire Thanks, and that's very buddy. inspiring about you is that you never gave up. 
and 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 you have a pure heart of gold. And, and you know, look, let me tell you something. I have a lot of friends that I'm friends with 20 plus years, different people, pure relationships where you could call them and and and, and you support them. And and I, I love seeing that from other people because not everybody uh, does that. So a lot of people uh, are what, what's in it for me. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, just you don't talk to them for two weeks, then you know they they hate you. You know, <laughs> I got some relationships where I could. I don't speak to people five years. We we speak. We pick up right where we left off. Like, well, listen, like, real friendships are rare. Yeah, like most relationships you have in your life are going to be based on circumstances that are going on, things that make it convenient for you to have. You know, it's it's, it's rare that you have real, true, long term friendships that aren't based on anything other than the two of you. You know, really enjoying each other's company and knowing each other and liking each other, and there being no financial gain or any other kind of gain. It's a rare thing. You don't get many of those. Listen, okay, Internet's uh, on IG, your boy from New York City, right? Yeah, man. B-O-Y from New York City. Uh, you know, give him a shout. And listen, Internet, so if you're if you're listening and, and you're in town and you've been there before, then you already know what it is, okay? But if you're from out of town and you're looking for some places to go to, okay, first of all, check out Made in New York Pizza. Okay, it's uptown, and who, who knows? You know, there'll be a bunch of more episodes. Check out Hunt and Fish Club, Okay. More importantly, pretty soon, when is uh, White Horse Tavern? White Horse Tavern, again? within a couple of weeks, yeah. Okay, 567 so Hudson Street. Come and, see and, us. And, and Southern Hospitality yeah. uh, Barbecue? 45th and 9th Avenue. I, I mean, look at this. Internet, let me tell you something. Uh, a very inspiring individual, a restaurateur, an entrepreneur, like I said, and just a real good fella. My friend, boy from New York City, Aton Sugarman. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy. Cheer. Internets, if you enjoyed that episode, then hit me up. That's right. Email me at thepremiumpeatshow at gmail.com. Again, that's thepremiumpeatshow at gmail.com. If you're an advertiser, any big company, small company, startup, whatever it is, you want to advertise on the Premium Peep Show, hit me up. Email thepremiumpeatshow at gmail.com. And we'll, we'll get to working. Okay, and if you have a suggestion or you want to hear a certain guest on the show, whatever it is, okay, you know, you could at Premium Pete at Premium Pete Show on Twitter or Instagram, or for the last time, I'll tell you. Well, I'm not gonna. It's not the last time. Email me the Premium Pete Show at gmail.com, and let's get to working. Cheers.